Institute located somewhere in Lowish, California. Uh, once again, we join hands and join hearts and find some solace in each other's company in this burning dumpster fire that is uh, America right now. But I'm here to tell you the good news. As Prince once said, uh, there's something else, the afterworld. Uh, we can always see the sun day, 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 and night, night, night. Um, let's jump right in. Mr. Proops, you can write me at fanmail4greg at gmail.com. Do I answer them all? I try. Mr. Proops, do not try. Do. Mr. Proops, I'm sure that you're inundated with this, but what more can one say? Keep up the fine work, Adrian. And it's a link to an article from a French newspaper called The Local. And I think you can guess what's about to happen here. If you haven't guessed by now, gird your loins. A beach in Cerber near the Spanish border has had a few surprise visitors this summer in the form of a not-so-wild boar and her five piglets. The boars are regular visitors to the beach and are known to wander up and down among the beachgoers, sniff out children's toys, and even take the odd dip in the waves. She's not shy, and you can go right up to her. People feed her, a local restaurant owner told La Parisienne newspaper. That's a startling disclosure. (laughs) You can go right up to her. People feed her. She's the mascot of the beach. A video of the boars taking bathing among the waves has even become a Facebook hit, racking up 1.2 million views in just days. You know, it's not like the old days when you'd have to have a Pony Express deliver your video across the country and people had to watch it one at a time with a steam-powered viewer or perhaps on their own Nickelodeon. Uh, However, the boars won't last long on the beach, with local authorities posting a sign on the beach notice board to say the boars will be taken to a nearby zoo before the end of September, Le Parisien reported. But locals, it seems, would like them to remain. Perhaps some entrepreneur could invent the borkini, so the animals can enjoy the public space like everybody else. I didn't write that, by the way. I'm off the hook for this one. The local wrote that one. Um, if the images are anything to go by, there doesn't seem to be the risk of public disorder. Um, these boars are so cute. We watched the video, the one that went viral in just days. And uh, it's a bunch of boars, a bunch of piglets, and a mother boar. And they're bathing in the sea. Uh, they're frolicking amongst the uh, beachgoers. People are, in fact, feeding them. Uh, I'm going to play you a little of it if it'll play off of this. Uh, I'll try to, in any case. There's really cute pictures. Ryan hasn't seen it yet. But here's, if you can tell by the audio. Oh, I've got to turn this off first. What a disaster. disaster. What if Duran Duran was there on the beach? See them? They're so cute. They look like little watermelons. And you can hear the French people. Zoot! Uh Uh-oh. Little piglet fracas there. This is some compelling podcasting, I grant you. A lot of people want substance in their podcasting. Uh, Matt Belknap, when we first started doing this five years ago, said, people are drawn to content, Greg. And and apparently that has gone by the wayside in this episode. If you go to the link, it's called uh, www.thelocal.fr, and it's in Pix Wild Boy and Her Piglets Charms Locals at French Beast. 
You can see there they are sharing a beach towel with some of the locals. There they are kind of running through a little canal. There they are being looked at by locals wearing bikinis. No, they're not wearing borkinis. Uh, it's the cutest thing you'll ever, ever see. Take a, take a sanity break uh, from the chimes of Crump and from everything that's going on. And uh, just dig some wild pigs for a little while. Thank you very much, Adrian, for writing me uh, your wild boar letter. I have taken it on board. Get it? I've taken it on board. Uh, we're starting this episode. Uh, we already started it. We're starting it again um, with a uh, Langston Hughes poem that Jennifer gave me this morning. Langston Hughes also has a Twitter account. So does, I believe, Einstein and Shakespeare, many people who have no longer uh, in our realm but have walked on. And Langston Hughes a Twitter account this morning because of uh, everything that's happened in the last few days tweeted this brilliant poem that justice is a blind goddess is a thing to which black we I'll start again so I can read it well that justice is a blind goddess is a thing to which we black our wise her bandages hide two festering sores that once perhaps were eyes I think you get the uh, idea there uh, I'm going to go to another article that Jennifer found for me on a site called awesomely lovey which tends to deal with um uh, black people problems. Another day, another hashtag. White people, you got to get to work now. Terrence Crutcher was a father, husband, son, uncle, pastor. Terrence Crutcher was shot and killed by an officer, Betty Shelby, even though he was unarmed. What started as his car breaking down led to his body in the morgue. That was the one in Tulsa. Uh, uh, we're recording this on the Wednesday. By the time you hear it, uh, it'll have been a week since this happened. Keith Lamont Scott was a father, husband, son, uncle. Keith Lamont Scott was shot and killed by a cop as he sat in his car reading a book. There's been a lot of uh, controversy over that because white people run the media. Um, a lot of people are saying that the, the Charlotte police are reporting that they didn't find a book. Um, there's also several reports that he got out of the car twice the second time with a gun. I'll say this. Um, the person in Minneapolis who was threatening everyone wasn't shot. Um, lots of people aren't shot when they're waving guns. Lots of white people aren't shot when they're waving guns. Lots of white people aren't shot for killing lots of people in churches. Um, so if you're looking for equivalency, you're not going to find it. And if you're looking for me um, to back up your claim that all lives matter, I'm not going to do it. Uh, what was started for him waiting his son to get off the school bus led to his body in the morgue. Keith was killed by a cop less than 24 hours after Terrence was killed by a cop. We didn't even get a chance to breathe between their deaths. We didn't get a chance to stop the bleeding before the next stab. We didn't stop crying for one before we started sobbing for the other. And the bad part is we know how it'll end. We know that the thug in blue will be on paid leave and eventually walk free. We've seen this movie before. Read. And then there's a link here if you wish to go on the site. It's called Awesomely Lovey. L-U-V-V-I-E dot com. Stages of what happens when there's injustice against black people. Uh, they go on. We can't help with our broken down cars. We can't sit in our cars and read. We just can't be. And it's frustrating. Well, there's frustrating and there's this. This is beyond frustrating. This is appalling. Excuse me. This is appalling. This is disgusting. This is infuriating. This is traumatizing. We are being lynched. We do everything right and comply to the T and still die. But it's important to know that not listening to a cop is not supposed to be a crime punishable by death. Besides, cops have apprehended mass murderers who are armed alive. Meanwhile, 13-year-old black boys with BB guns are shot and killed. For instance, uh, all the time, every week. And um, my friend, uh, my old friend from San Francisco, W. Camo Bell, who has um, a show for a couple of years called The Bell Curve and then a show on CNN where he goes around the country, tweeted this morning, I'm black, I'm 43, I read books, I pick up my kids from school. 
I am Keith Lamont Scott. I just haven't been killed yet. Hashtag Black Lives Matter, which I retweeted um, in solidarity with him and friendship because I know Kamo and I did his um, show. He has several podcasts, but one of which is Denzel Washington's The Greatest Actor of All Time. The amount of white supremacists, the amount of um, uh, re- reactive white people um, coming at him uh, study this real hard it's easy to stay alive if you don't point guns at cops and there's a chart about pointing guns at cops that's from someone who didn't feel that uh, justice was wasn't done uh, there's um, even more racist stuff than that there's a um, basically a lot of people are advising him to stop victimizing himself and saying poor me and uh, I can't really get down with that and I don't agree with it and if you want to know why um, the state of things is the way it is um, and that why Donald Trump has any support whatsoever, it's because people feel this way. They feel splintered. They don't feel part of a whole. And I'm here to tell you that we're all one big family, whether you're black or white, and that the things that happen to black people are not things that are happening in another universe that you have no truck with and no... Just because it's not happening in front of you doesn't mean it's not happening to an entire group of people in this country, millions of people, and that you should be sympathetic. Um, rather than react angrily or react how you wish, but remember empathy. Um, I'm going to cut to the uh, meat of this article, which is um, uh, what white people can do. Uh, since some of you listening, I'm assuming are white. Amplify the voice, amplify the voices of black and brown people. When you don't have the words to speak up, give your mic to someone black who does. Share their Facebook status, retweet them, and tell others you know how to drink up their perspective. At the minimum, you can do that. It is a statement in itself. Talk to your family and friends. I'm a firm believer we cannot fix anything until we change hearts and minds. And we do that by challenging those closest to us. That means that if you sit at the dinner table and someone spews hateful things, bigoted statements, and is just being racist, you speak against it. Um, When it comes... When they come with their all lives matter dumbassery, let them know. Also, teach your kids that color of somebody's skin matters just to the point of you acknowledging their history. It shouldn't be what determines whether they get to live or die. Donate to anti-racism work. Give money to those who are doing anti-racist work. Organizations like Black Youth Project 100, Dream Defenders, Asata's Daughters. Pay attention to platforms like Color of Change and Color Lines and donate to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, which, as you may have, if you're hip to the jive, uh, heard um, uh, President Obama talking about going on a special secret trip with them. Michelle and uh, the girls last week, which we mentioned on the show. Um, know who you're voting for. Uh, who's on the ballot? Who are the people in place to make decisions? Why do you keep voting for the racist asshats? Why do the judges who criminalize black boys get repeat terms? Why do the congressmen who spew hate about black people get their seats back over and over again? Why are the governors who are saying all lives matter winning their races? Because you keep voting for racist people who are hell-bent on maintaining the status quo of oppression. Not just that, they're creating racist poli- policies that are actively allowing the deaths of unarmed people in the hands of coward ass cops stop that 88 percent of congress is up for election this year make your votes count make your votes count there as well as in local elections demand accountability call your representatives and congressmen when an unarmed black person is killed in their jurisdiction write letters expressing your disgust your voice matters white people are often looked at as authority for the mere fact they're white use that power to advocate for change and for equality be a witness when you see a black or brown person get pulled over by a cop pull over too and watch the encounter from a distance Make notes. Your very presence might de-escalate the situation. Protest. Use your bodies in this fight. Take to the streets and march and protest. See that those people in gear can see that the faces look like theirs. Commit, commit yourself to fixing this. You are not helpless. We no longer need white allies, but white co-conspirators. Don't just talk about 
really be about this life and act. The idea was birthed by protesters in Ferguson and recently brought to my attention by a Facebook status I saw from Rosa Clemente. Get to work, white folks, because we've tried. God knows we've tried. Fix it. I don't know exactly how, but shit, and this part is hilarious, create an app or something. Just fix this. Get to work. Um, uh, very awesome advice from um, Awesomely Lovey. And uh, I wanted to read that to you because I think it's really important. Um, I'm a white people. I'm a middle-aged white people. Um, a lot of the things she's talking about are extraordinarily important. All of them are. And uh, we have a very clear choice in this election, a, ch- a choice that's em- eminently clear. Um, there's Donald Trump, who is bigoted, racist, and uh, there's really no... Uh, dancing around it. He's a gigantic uh, racist yam uh, that has been given full voice and um, given an insane amount of leeway and power to a group that hitherto has uh, hidden in the shadows. What's the good news on that end, Greg? They're no longer in the shadows and we know how the racists are. Anyone who supports Donald Trump, whether they're in office or not in office, is in effect supporting racism. Therefore, now you know who they are. Um, I can tell you for sure uh, that Mr. Bannon and... uh, Mr. Manafort and uh, Mr. Ailes, who all work on the campaign, and Mr. Landowski, who's getting paid by CNN and is working for the Trump campaign, are all racist and also uh, harassers of women and therefore misogynist. And therefore, I think it's reasonably clear. Back to the humor. Uh, just this week, <laughs> Lindy West wrote this in uh, The Guardian, since we're, we're switching topics and going back to um, the crimes of Trump, the crime, the crimes of Crump. Uh, just this week, we've seen Trump uh, metabolize the Chelsea bombing into an incoherent anti-Clinton smear before the shrapnel even settled. By the way, it was homeless people that found the other bombs, stole a suitcase, and therefore uh, the, 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 the bombing device, the implement, uh, was found by the cops. They also phoned the police. So the lowest strata of our society, the people that we walk over uh, when we're walking down the street, the people that we ignore roundly and the people that we don't fund, um, help save New York this week. So keep that in mind. Uh, I've listened to my Muslim friends express their fear of leaving the house after Monday's unconscionably irresponsible emergency alert, the kind of histrionic racial profiling Trump vows to amplify. By the way, um, him and Sean Hannity and a bunch of nutbags are... Um, uh, are, are, promoting, uh, are excuse me, promoting stop and frisk again, which was stopped in New York, as you know, and was wildly unsuccessful. That was under Mayor Bloomberg, uh, who said he had the fifth largest uh, military in the world. And as if you recall, the NYPD was also monitoring Muslim students and eavesdropping and um, spying on lots of people. You may remember during the uh, Zuccotti Park and what happened with uh, Occupy, how so many protesters in New York were tear gassed, beaten, put in jail and denied their rights. And so few Wall Street uh, investment bankers uh, had the same thing happen to them for a crime of much less um, importance. Uh, let's see here. We have all to get very tough on things, of course. He always gets tough on things. Apparently, including freedom of expression. We've uh, clocked Trump's pin drop silence on the shooting decks of Terrence Crutcher and Tyree King. Uh, don't worry, over the summer, he promised to make the streets safer for police. Trump joked again about the assassination of Hillary Clinton. His son compared refugees who are human beings who need our asylum to live um, to Skittles. Uh, we'll get to that one. Uh, and then she writes, because she's writing for an English paper, which are sweets. They don't really eat Skittles in England. Um, only Americans put Skittles in their face, fistful after fistful. Whether or not you feel comfortable with every decision and position in Clinton's past, I do not. She's qualified. She's shrewd, savvy, tough politician. Um, Clinton has weathered intrusive, insulting, gendered, smeared campaigns, cookies, Benghazi, emails, and pneumonia with a grace rivaled only by Obama's unflappable handling of, handling of birthers. She swam through tar every single day of her career and still surpassed male opponents who swam through water. She's been scrutinized 
in bad faith and beyond all reason for her entire campaign and decades prior, and Republicans have still had to manufacture Baroque toothless scandals out of dust motes. Yet, somehow, 42% of my country apparently believes that Donald Trump is more qualified to address foreign policy and safety than an actual seasoned diplomat. Do you guys think Secretary of State is the kind of secretary who gets the president's coffee? Is that the confusion? That was Lindy Weston, The Guardian. Um, because we want to give all viewpoints, Jennifer Rubin is a conservative columnist who writes for The Washington Post. And this was her headline on Monday after um, the birther incident of the um, weekend, which was more of a hotel opening that included some awesome racism and then a curtain falling down as a metaphor for the entire campaign, followed by a bunch of surrogates going on TV and humiliating themselves uh, and, and bathing in lies. We're so far uh, up to our neck in lies at this point that Trump's hot tub doesn't have room for a fart bubble to get to the surface. Uh, those Republicans mortified by the presidential nomination of Donald Trump have been pondering a series of questions over the past few months. Have Republicans put party above country in backing Trump? This is very reasoned, you see. Um, yes, they have. I'll answer that for you, Ms. Rubin. Can the GOP survive Trump? Um, no. No, this is it. Um, it's going to splinter into two parties, the Nazi wing and then the other wing of fiscal conservative white guys who want to wear bad hair. Three, should the center right let bygones be bygones after the election? Under no circumstances, unless you want to prove your lack of humanity even further than you have already. Um, we found out a couple of days ago from uh, Robert Kennedy's daughter that Herbert Walker Bush, who was president of the United States briefly in the early 90s, um, is going to vote for Hillary Clinton, as is Barbara Bush. And that's not by inference. She said it earlier in the year. The answers have become clear over the past few days. Uh, an egregiously false statement on Thursday claiming Trump ended the birther controversy. This is what the birther controversy was. Um, black people are pulled over. Black people are shot. Black people um, can't walk down the street. Black people can't buy Skittles or walk with Skittles, which is the, uh, the Trayvon Martin end of the um, situation there. Um, police service slave patrols uh, to... Um, uh, curtail the rights of black people and to make sure that they're they're uh, living in fear of uh, authority at all times. Um, the birtherism, uh, which they insist on calling it, like they insist on calling um, uh, white supremacists alt-right, um, there is no such thing as being a birther. Uh, President Obama was born in the United States. Donald Trump pressed the issue for five years. Uh, he made him uh, cough up uh, uh, an extensive birth certificate, which he did, and then said that wasn't enough. Um, it's a racist cop pulling over a black person. It is the demands that white people always make on black people. You're not good enough. I want your papers. You're not from here. Your power is not warranted. Your power is not justified. Your power doesn't exist because I haven't granted it to you. That's what birtherism is. Let's stop calling it. Um, birtherism and start calling it racism because that's what it is. If you don't believe that a black man deserves to be president because you don't believe it because you have no reason for it, then that's being a racist. Um, much like you'll find a lot of people don't believe Hillary should be president because there's just something about her. I don't know what is. Her, her dick is missing. Uh, it's a wall. So here we go. Uh, I'm going to run along here and um, she praises a few people that I don't find are particularly praiseworthy. And she also mentions a lot of good things. But let's just skip it off here. Uh, in light of the fact, let's look at three questions above. No matter what Hillary Clinton's faults, and there are many, it's hard to seriously argue that a man who would lead a racist conspiracy theory and then blame his opponent is fit to be president. Trump, like a small child caught misbehaving. I'm, I'm tired of that analogy, too. Like a rich white guy. 
Small children are generally honest about their opinions. I've played a lot of shows for small children. And if they don't think you're funny, they're like, boo, this sucks. And if a child doesn't like you, they go, I hate you. I'm walking away now. And if you're patronizing to a child, they won't have intercourse with you socially. Rich white guys, on the other hand, say anything they like, anytime they like, and act completely like children. And this projecting that he's doing of calling her a bigot of saying that she started the birther movement, um, that's what rich white guys do to avoid any responsibility for anything. We're going to get to the CEO of Wells Fargo, which we talked about last week, and Elizabeth Warren confronting him. This isn't childlike behavior. This is infant infantilism. Um, he's below the potty train stage. They say that your personality is developed by the time you're five years old. Well, we're getting a lot of four-year-old and three-year-old traits from Donald Trump here. But to say that he's acting like a child is dismissive of children. There are children I know that I would put in power before I'd put Donald Trump in power, and I would trust them more to tell me the truth. I don't trust him to say the truth at any point at any time. Um, simply uh, denies or blames someone else. He called uh, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates a clown. And then, of course, he tweeted about it because uh, he's uh, that kind of uh, loose, uh, lazy, uh, indolent, uh, privileged rich white person that feels he can just use any assault on anyone and that and there's no ramifications and that no one's going to call him on it again and again he's proven his views are so extreme uh, his judgment so egregious and his character so twisted that only someone in deep denial or blinded by partisanship could defend him and insist he's worthy of the office by the way this is the conservative columnist for the washington post as for the fate jennifer rubin as for the fate of the GOP, the evidence mounts it cannot go merrily on its way after the election a party that would sanction people who call out a racist deserve to go out of business that's in italics. A party whose congressional leaders remain supportive of nominee who incites violence, perpetrates racism, blatantly and traffics in conspiracy theories, loses the moral authority to govern. Um, and that was her column. And I couldn't agree more. Donald Trump Jr. Um, he's the... Uh, I don't know if he's more the serial killer one or the more rapier one of the two. It's, it's difficult to tell between Eric and him. Uh, we know that they're all... Uh, Zaya, what, what, was this, what were they on Battlestar Galacticum? The, the Zylons, we know they're Zylons, uh, or even I kind of get more of a Borg thing out of them, although the Borg were entertaining. And you know Ivanka's got a great new health care plan that she uh, stole from Hillary. In any case, uh, Donald Trump compared the Syrian refugees to, um, he tweeted an image that said, make America great again, and he compared uh, Syrian refugees to poisoned Skittles. Uh, and then the, the Skittles spokesperson, uh, oh God, it, it, some noted the precarious position in which this has put the Skittles social media manager. <laughs> well, I like Skittles as much as the next person who likes things that taste like children's medicine imbued with treacle. Um, you can get diabetes looking at a package of Skittles. I can't think of anything that makes your mouth water more the first bite you take other than a starburst. It's a pungent combination of citrus and sugar that is um you you, you have a, a hallucination while you're eating skittles that you can feel your fillings completely dissolving as you eat them like they're alien blood i'm not saying you shouldn't have a skittle have a skittle they have a fun name to say um uh, they were of course mortified that donald trump jr said that skittles are candies refugees are people we don't feel it's an appropriate analogy as any we will not comment further as anything we say could be misinterpreted as marketing that was denise young well done skittles um the reason why skittles are an issue in case you are asleep living in a cave or listening in luxembourg trayvon martin left his father's house to go to the store on february 26 2012 and bought a bag of skittles and an arizona watermelon flavored drink when he was confronted by a neighborhood watch volunteer and we know who he is he shot and killed him 
Uh, Donald Trump Jr. tweet. I'm a refugee, says Skittles photographer. This is from the BBC. Jennifer gave me this. Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet comparing Skittles to refugees has caused a furor on social media. David Kittos, 48, from Guilford, woke up to find an image he had posted to Flickr in January 2010 had become embroiled in a political controversy. The picture of the bowl of Skittles where he says, if there's a poison bowl of Skittles, you know, blah, 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 was a picture taken by David Kittos. In 74, when I was six years old, I was a refugee from the Turkish occupation of Cyprus, so I would never approve the use of this image against refugees. In his tweet, the son of the Republican presidential candidate uses Mr. Kittos' image with the accompanying text, if I had a bottle of Skittles and I told you just three would kill you, would you take a handful? If it would mean getting out of your presence or having to avoid sitting next to you at a cocktail party, yes, is the answer from me, Greg Proops Jr. Um, that's our Syrian refugee problem. He adds, the image says it all. Let's end the politically correct agenda that doesn't put America first. There is no politically correct agenda that doesn't put America first. Um, you'll find, Donald Trump Jr., um, that we're using all of our military and diplomatic strength at all times to destroy other people and also to, to uh, negotiate with other people uh, on this matters. Um, you live in a bubble uh, where only people wearing gimme caps that say make America great again have any kind of opinion. And a lot of your supporters believe um, things that are beyond the pale of belief that uh, Obama has, uh, that, Ms., that, that Hillary Clinton has AIDS, that Obama's a Muslim. Um, things that are, uh, to put it mildly, uh, fruitin' tootin', scootin' bootin', rippin' pippin', peepin', pipin', hot, illogical. Uh, Six years ago, when there were no Syrian refugees at the time, it was never done with the intention of spreading a political message. I was just experimenting something called off-camera flash. I don't support Trump's politics, and I would never take this money, his money to use it. Mr. Kito's personal history means he's particularly dismayed by his image being used in a debate around accepting refugees. I am now a British citizen, but I am a Greek Cypriot by birth. Uh, I was six years old. We lived in Cyprus that's now under Turkish military control. I would like the Trump campaign to delete the image, but they're probably not interested in what I have to say. By the way... Some couple of hundred thousand refugees have died in drowning uh, in this crisis. And uh, there was a, um, a protest on, in London the other day in front of Parliament where they laid out life preservers for all of them. And uh, it, it, that is what we should be worried about, um, not Donald Trump's feelings and not Donald Trump Jr.'s opinion, of which he has none, uh, any more than uh, I have um, several orifices to excrete with. Uh, uh, what we should really be worrying about is humanitarian needs. Over the years, we upgrade so many things. Cars, phones, TVs. When was the last time you upgraded your underwear? That's right, your underwear. I want to tell you about Tommy John. Not the surgery and not the awesome picture. The revolutionary men's underwear brand that's redefined comfort for guys everywhere. Including your own Greg. Each pair is crafted from ultra lightweight fabric for maximum breathability. The legs never ride up. The waistband never rolls down. Tommy John's patented 21st century design even makes it impossible to get a wajee. Look, I've tried all kinds of different underwear brands trying to find the perfect fit. I've been around the world. Tommy John is simply the best there is. And they've got a lot more than unbelievable underwear. Their undershirts go on like a second skin. They hug you, they hold you, and they never come untucked. Even their socks are engineered to stay up all day. And all Tommy John underwear is backed by the best pair you'll ever wear. Or it's free guarantee. Tommy John. No adjustment needed. Hurry to TommyJohn.com slash Proops to experience life-changing comfort and get 20% off your first order. That's TommyJohn.com slash Proops for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash Proops. Be sure to put the R in. You are getting underwear. 
Um, moving on, um, swirling in the heavens, uh, and I, I really can't say enough about this individual, um, Edward Albee, the playwright. And yes, it's pronounced Albee. And how do I know? Because I read his correction of a New York uh, critic's pronunciation of his name. It is not Albee. It is Albee. Uh, Edward Albee is, a, is, I don't know if he's twirling in the heavens. In my opinion, now that he's passed into the other world, he's again having a drink and a cigarette and sitting at the pearly gates, caustically commenting on everyone who comes in's posture. He was a heavenly playwright in so much as he had complete command of the English language and absolute control of the emotional direction um, that his plays uh, encompass. He generally tends to talk about the emotional state of rich white people and how that relates to the human condition, sex and death being major themes with him. You may know the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or A Delicate Balance or his more recent plays The Goat, uh, or um, which was about a, a privileged white person having an affair with a goat and ruining his family's relationship with him. Three Tall Women was about his mother in three stages of her life, different ages. And um, I'm forgetting the other one. Or I said it, didn't I? Okay, good. Uh, myriad Pulitzer Prizes, Tony's on either end of the career, an illustrious career in the theater, a devotee of Samuel Beckett, who he had a chance to meet. Um, when he was a teenager, uh, he first of all, he was born to a rich family. He was adopted. And uh, his plays are not full of warmth and cuddliness. And he was not a warm and cuddly playwright. He was acerbic and uh, biting, uh, caustic even, and also wildly observant and accurate about people's emotional foibles. And they asked him about his childhood, and he's like, oh, what was it? Were you a pessimist? And he said, uh, I was uh, put up for adoption when I was a week old and bought by a family for $133. So that was uh, helped shape his viewpoint. He also openly discussed the fact, uh, much like Camus in the novel The Stranger, that he disliked his parents intensely, and particularly his mother, and that they disliked him intensely. And I want to tell you out there, if you're listening out in podcast land, my note of hope for today is, it's okay to dislike your parents intensely. If you love them and they love you, well done. You are so lucky. You don't know how lucky you are. Um, there are lots of people who dislike their parents intensely and whose parents dislike them. And it's okay. It's normal too. It's not an aberration and it's not something you have to feel bad about. And I give you permission to hate your fucking parents if you want to. Um, and Mr. Albies, Albie certainly did. Um, he talked about it to the end of his life. Uh, three tall women he wrote after she passed away. And he said she'd done more destructive uh, things to people around her and herself than anyone else. And that uh, the, uh, we were watching a CBS interview from a couple of years back. And the interviewer said, did she, she seemed to be proud of you. And he went, she was proud of Edward Albee. And she went, you mean not you? And he meant, I mean, she was proud of the successful playwright. That's something she was proud of. Uh, in any case, when he was a teenager, he went to uh, Choate. Uh, he had a very uh, expensive education because his parents were rich. And they sent him to good schools. Much for, to our uh, fortuitousness, uh, how lucky we are that he went to good schools because his um, writing is superb. He started as a poet and he tried to do a bunch of things, essays, poets. We'll get to some of his quotes later where he covers that. In any case, he met Thornton Wilder. And if you don't know who Thornton Wilder is, he's an eminent American author, playwright, who wrote the famous play Our Town, uh, which takes place in Grover's Corners, a fictional place. And uh, it takes you through all this Americana and uh, love and death and dating and whatnot. And Thornton Wilder um, 
Did he also not write The Matchmaker, that's Hello Dolly's based on? Uh, Thornton Wilder is a, was an observer from sort of upstate New York, uh, East Coasty, turn of the century. Uh, in any case, he had chance to meet Edward Albee, and we were watching an interview with him, and Albee said, Albee said so brilliantly, he showed his poems to Thornton Wilder, and they were sitting next to a pond, and after each poem, Wilder would read the poem and then put it on the pond, and by the end he said there were no more poems, and they were all floating on the water. And he's like, well, about your poems, Edward. And he says, well, did you read them? He's like, yes, you can see they're all here. And he says, um, have you considered becoming a playwright? <laughs> and he's, Al Halby said he suggested that to save, poet, to save poetry from me. <laughs> uh, uh, Albee's, career, Albee's career began after the death of Eugene O'Neill and after Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams had produced their, most of their best-known plays. He's always in their air. Uh, I believe that uh, not many people would argue that Eugene O'Neill... And Tennessee Williams wouldn't be the great... Well, you can argue anybody. Arthur Miller. I would put Sam Shepard up there as well, but that's me. Uh, of a great American playwrights of the 20th century. Carrying it through the era of Tony Kushner and Angels America, August Wilson and his Pittsburgh cycle. And we've talked about August Wilson on the show. Not Tony Kushner enough, but we'll get to him in another app. And into the 21st century. He introduced himself suddenly in a, with a bang in 1959 when this first produced play, The Zoo Story, opened in Berlin on a double bill with Beckett's Crops Last Tape. A two-hander in German, by the way. Um... Albee said that that was the first time he'd seen his play produced and the first time he'd seen a Beckett play, and they were both in a language he didn't understand. Of course, later, they came back. Why were they produced together? Because they're both 45-minute plays. They're one acts. A zoo story is about a, a, a kind of a indigent drifter type. Uh, he has a crappy apartment, uh, meets a businessman on a bench in Central Park, and uh, everything happens. And Crap's Last Tape is an old man listening to himself on tape recorder and recording his thoughts as he considers um, what did uh, uh, be quote Beckett is saying the the vast black the black vast the black vast um, when the play came to Provincetown Playhouse in Greenwich Village the next year it helped propel the blossoming theater movement that became known as Off-Broadway it was um, it's a two-hander and it's easily done and all you need is a bench and two people and uh, I did it quite often in high school and um, like that. And it, it, we read Albie, Albie and, uh, when I was in high school. And um, Off-Broadway wasn't such a big thing in the late 50s, right? By the early 60s, it becomes a huge force. And then it became the gestation place and think tank for so much of what happens in American theater um, in those days happened off-Broadway. Still, of course. Uh, his Broadway debut, The Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, was the famously scabrous portrait of a withered marriage, won a Tony in 63 for Best Play, ran for a year and a half, and enthralled and shocked theatergoers with its depiction of stifling academia and a couple whose relationship has been corroded by dashed hopes, wounding recriminations, and drink. I think that encapsulates Albee's take on so many things. People are often in long-term relationships in his plays, and people are often drinking with something close to a vengeance. And uh, their innermost thoughts are revealed at all times. There's also the underlying love of Albee, I think, uh, if I may be so bold, as amateur theater critic and smartest man in the world, is um, that the character's are tied to each other and love each other. He's not writing about desolate people who are spinning off into orbits all on their own. He's writing about people who are emotionally entangled to a point where their inner thoughts are almost like barbs being thrown at one another and their feelings come out. 
and these glorious um, invective uh, and the glorious invective that he uh, uses. The 66 film adaptation directed by the late great Mike Nichols, who is swirling in the heavens and starring uh, Burton and Taylor turned the play into Mr. Albee's most famous work. Now, you have to understand in 1966, when the movie came out, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton were the most famous people in the world. They were what if uh, Brangelina and Kim and Kanye were a couple. They're that famous. If they'd had social media then, Elizabeth Taylor would have 70 million followers, okay? And um, they drank, they had sex, they fought, they bought ships, they had dogs, they, uh, they, they carried buckets of diamonds, they spent extravagant amounts of money on ridiculous things. She had ribs shipped from down the block for, uh, 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 what, what was Chasen's it was called. Um, she had Chasen's chili shipped to England on a whim because she felt like having Chasen's chili. So they would, by the way, there was no Federal Express then, she had it done. Um, they brought dogs with them to England knowing that the dogs couldn't enter England because... Their quarantine laws prevented it. So the dogs would stay on the boat in the Thames. A yacht, rather. Uh, We know for a fact that uh, at one point they had a parakeet, a parrot in their bedroom that could do Richard Burton. And that when answered the phone, when the phone rang, (laughs) the the parrot would go, hello. And then, hello, Elizabeth. And so... and. They turned the air conditioning on and left for the summer to go to London. And when they came back, the parrot froze to death. I know this about them. How do you know this? An undisclosed source of undeniable verification. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm going to Chuck Todd this one. Uh, in any case, uh, they were so famous. The movie came out and the parts fit them perfectly. Uh, he's a drunk professor. She's a drunk wife of a professor whose father was chancellor of the university. He hasn't succeeded to her expectations. They have a young couple over for drinks and all bloody hell breaks loose. And Elizabeth Burton is blousy and glorious and screamy and sexy and shrieky in it. And Elizabeth Burton, uh, Elizabeth Burton, uh, which he was going by at the time, Richard Burton is um, uh, uh, dickless and bitter and uh, uh thwarted and highly intelligent and they're both amazing it's 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 all it's worth your while no according to Albee, it wasn't written about four gay men and he took the gravest umbrage and uh, was in the highest possible dudgeon at the very suggestion of that uh, which has always been suggested now let's get to Albee. um uh, the goat or who is sylvia won another tony ran for a year and a half and staved off critical despair however briefly that commercial theater could no longer support serious drama um, as I told you, the plot of the goat or who is Sylvia is, um, uh, he's a, is he a bit, he's receiving an award. He's a famous architect, is it? And on the night of him receiving the famous award, his family, uh, the news is revealed that he's having a sexual and romantic affair with a goat. And I believe the son says at one point, dad, you're just a goat fucker. And this was, uh, Albie's edgy. Let me put it that way. Um, his intent was not to entertain you and make you smile. You weren't supposed to nudge your partner knowingly and wink at them and then ride home together and have ice cream. You were supposed to be appalled at the barrenness of the human spirit. You were supposed to be at once titillated and completely dismayed um, that humans treat each other this way. And at the same time, understand like Euripides did or Aristophanes or the playwrights that he always quotes, which is Pirandello and uh, Shakespeare and Moyer, that the human condition includes these things. Uh, and I'm talking about inappropriate erections. I'm talking about cancer. I'm talking about the fear of death. I'm talking about the insane anxiety of human existence where people are driven from their homes and show up at another person's house because of the overwhelming sense of dread. That's the plot of A Delicate Balance. 
There is no plot. A couple shows up at another couple's house and goes, we couldn't stay at our house anymore because we're losing our minds. And they proceed to get drunk and all hell breaks loose, okay? So you got the idea. Uh, Albie, in 2012, all of my plays are about people missing the boat, closing down too young, coming to the end of their lives with regret at things not done. He personally said everyone should live their life on the edge all the time. Mister, uh, He was gay. Uh, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he gave up being an alcoholic. He was never in the closet. Uh, he was in a long-term relationship and was unabashed in his opinion at all times. Uh, ben Brantley of the New York Times once wrote, Mr. Albee has an unsparingly considered subjects outside the average theater goer's comfort zone. The capacity for sadism and violence within American society, the fluidness of human identity, the dangerous irrationality of sexual attraction, and always the irrefutable presence of death. Uh, we had occasion to meet Mr. Albee, uh, not under professional circumstances. Um, my encounter with him was brief and succinct. Uh, he was dead sexy. And this was several years ago. We were landing in Los Angeles and I accosted him at the baggage carousel where I said, Mr. Albee, uh, are you here to uh, do a play? And he said, no, I'm teaching a class. And then I realized that I was being summarily dismissed. And so I pissed off. We got on a plane from London uh, to Los Angeles and we had seen, this was 2012, I reckon, um, a brilliant revival of a, a wildly unsuccessful play that he did called um, The Lady from Dubuque. The plot of The Lady from Dubuque is a woman has cancer and she knows she's dying. She's drinking at her rich white home. And at the end of the first act, a woman shows up with a familiar uh, uh, and uh, is inex- not explained who she is or why she's there. In the second act, of course, it is revealed um, that she is death. And she's never called death, and her familiar is clearly a, a, a supernatural type character. And um, at, I was at the end of the first act. I can't remember. Finally, someone says to her, "Who are you?" And she and it was Maggie Smith. We saw Maggie Smith do it on West End stage. She went, "Who am I?" Well, I'm the lady from Dubuque. And so death was the lady from Dubuque. I think it ran fourteen performances when it came out and he had a hissy fit over the reception then he did a play called the man with three arms which was a play about a man who had three arms and he became a a media sensation then one of his arms withered and fell off and then he only had two arms and the media gave up on him and one of the papers called it a two-hour temper tantrum (laughs) (laughs) so his relationship with the critics was pretty wild so we're on the plane and all be gets on and Jennifer goes, oh, no. And this is one time I, I had to encourage her. Uh, she said, I can't. I love him too much. I'm impressed. I'm a fan. She'd been to see him speak at the Almeida. We'd been to see many of his plays. And there he was sitting by himself. She went over to the flight attendant and said, do you know who that is? And she's, the flight attendant was like, no. Or didn't you? You, you did. I did. And she said, no. So we had uh, uh, bought a card at the Neue Gallery in New York. So it was a beautiful a German card from the 30s art piece and I gave her the pen and I said Jennifer go over there I said um, he'll talk to you and so she went over and knelt next to his chair in first class and said uh, uh, I'm a fan we saw the lady from Dubuque and if there's one thing you need to know about an artist don't bring up their greatest hits right if she'd gone up to him and said I adored I'm afraid of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf he would have gone terrific a lot of generations have uh, it, not an albatross around his neck. He had to, he, the way he characterized the play. It's the first famous thing he did, and so therefore he had to wear it. Um, the Lady from Dubuque was something that 
died a huge death on Broadway. No one revived it until they did it in London. And he said to Jennifer, Maggie Smith was responsible for that. She took the role knowing it would sell tickets for the promoters. And so they put it on. And by the way, it only ran 30 days, maybe, maybe a month in London. We got, we were lucky to see it when we did. Um, by the way, it's quite good. I, I wouldn't put it up there with delicate balance, which we also saw Maggie Smith in or even Virginia Woolf. But it's not, uh, it's not nearly as dismal uh, as the critics. Uh, no one was ready for an existential play where death walks in and doesn't announce who they are uh, to a woman who's dying of cancer while everyone gets drunk and has at each other. Uh, that wasn't the good times that were required then. Here we go. After Tiny Alice's drama about Christian faith, money, and ethics of worship opened on Broadway, causing much consternation and even outrage, who uh, among critics who failed to discern meaning in its murky symbols... Mr. Albee attended a news conference ostensibly to discuss the play, but ended up lecturing on the subject of criticism. This is after Tiny Alice didn't do well. And by the way, he wrote another play called The Death of Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith is a brilliant American artist who was uh, in a terrible accident and white police did not get her to the hospital in time. They would not take her to a white hospital. And that's why Bessie Smith died. And that's what the play is about. So you can see where he's coming from. It's not enough for a critic to tell his audience how well a place succeeds in its intention. He must also judge the intent, that intention by the absolute standards of the theater as an art form. He added when critics perform only the first function, they leave the impression that less ambitious plays are better ones because they come closer to achieving their ambitions. Well, perhaps they're better plays to their audience, but they are not better plays for their audience. And since the critic fashions the audience taste, whether he intends to or not, he succeeds each season in merely lowering it. This was a press conference he gave after a play. Um, and I am with him, baby. Uh, I, I am not of the mind that there oughtn't be critics. There ought to be critics because without critics, everything would be shit all the time. Everything would be an Adam Sandler movie with the Avengers assembling at the end of it. But uh, there is also the notion that things have to be um, recognizable, discernible, and easily digestible. I don't agree with that at all. Uh, you may have gathered from my work that I don't care whether you understand. Uh, maybe I'm a European. This one here is great. Uh, he did really well in Europe always. Maybe I'm a European playwright and I don't know it. He said in an interview in 91, look at the playwrights who are not performed on Broadway now. Sophocles, Aristophanes, Shakespeare, Marlowe, Moliere, Ibsen, Chekhov, Pirandello, Beckett, Genet, not a one of them. Uh, referring to the hysterical skirt hiking appalledum of critics after his 83 play The Man Who Had Three Arms Opened and Quickly Closed he said you'd have thought it was women see seeing mice climb up their legs that's how he described the critics reaction to that hysterical skirt hiking appalledum yes his major works Delicate Balance uh, All Over uh, Seascape um Another Pulitzer winner of a creepily comic, slightly ominous meditation on monogamy, evolution, and mortality that develops from an oceanside discussion involving an elderly woman and a couple, an uh, elderly human couple, and a pair of anthropomorphic lizards. Yes, there are talking lizards in the play. Three Tall Women uh, is um, uh, a memories of his adoptive mother scrutinizing in its very stages the life of a dying woman. Um, that also won a Pulitzer Prize. Albee is not a friend of mankind, the critic John Law wrote in The New Yorker in 2012. The friendships he stages are loose affiliations that serve mostly as a bulwark against meaninglessness. Mm. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't necessarily agree with John Law, uh, who I have great respect for. 
Um, he wrote, I'll, I'll be. All plays, if they're any good, are constructed as correctives. That's the job of the writer. Holding that mirror up to people. We're not merely decorative, pleasant, and safe. Uh, his own writing was less than successful. He tried short stories and gave up them up. He published a handful of poems. He gave that up when he's 26. I remember thinking, Edward, you're getting better as a poet, but the problem is you don't really feel like a poet, do you? You feel like someone who's writing poetry. I knew I was a writer and had failed basically at all the branches of writing, but I was still a writer. So I did the only thing I had not done. I wrote a play. It was called The Zoo Story. And that's where his career was launched. Um, Mr. Albee espoused the view that would become his uh, credo that theatergoers should be challenged to confront situations and ideas that lie outside their comfort zones. I want the audience to run out of the theater, but to come back and see the play again. Um, when he wrote The Goat, uh, he was talking about The Goat um, he was talking about the walkouts every night. And he said, um, I wrote this play about a man having a sexual and romantic affair with a goat. And there were walkouts every night. And he smiles in the interview. And then he says, and it was at different places. <laughs> the news that he was uh, having sex with a goat wasn't the place that everyone walked out on. And I think that's what fascinated Halby so much. That humans could sit through that part of sickening information, but then get mad at other things that rubbed them the wrong way. Uh, let's see here. This was, uh, the, the, this is, these are some of the reviews for uh, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, a sick play for sick people. That was the Daily Mirror. And then this one is one of the great reviews from the Daily News in New York. Three and a half hours long, four characters wide, and a cesspool deep. Uh, let's see here. So uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is a legendary title. And there's been many misapplications and misinterpretations of how he got it. Obviously, it's a very bitchy... Uh, hilarious thing to say uh, if you know anything about literature and of course uh, anything about the Three Little Pigs movie by Walt Disney where they sing Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf um, this is from the Paris Review in 66 and let that be the end of it I started the birther thing and I'm ending it today there was a saloon it's changed its name now on 10th Street between Greenwich and Waverly that was called something at one time now called something else and they had a big mirror on the downstairs bar in the saloon where people used to scrawl graffiti. At one point, back in about 53, 54, I think it was, long before any of us started doing much of anything, I was in there having a beer one night and I saw Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf scrawled in soap, I suppose, on this mirror. When I started to write the play, it cropped up in my mind again. And of course, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf means Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Who's Afraid of Living Life Without False Illusions? And it did strike me as being a rather typical university intellectual joke. Uh, the lady from Dubuque, the man who had three arms. Let's see here. I wanted to get to the quotes here. Uh, this is a, a, a Ben Brantley of the New York Times wrote this appraisal of him. And this is one paragraph I wanted you to read to you. Edward Albee never expected or even wanted you to like his plays. Like is too pale and friendly a word for the red-blooded emotions he hoped to elicit. Rage and bewilderment, fear and loathing, and that grand old Aristotelian couple, pity and terror. Those, these were all welcome and entirely appropriate responses to have in the theater of Mr. Albee, one of the genuinely great dramatists of the last century. Aristotle wrote a book called The Poetics, and in The Poetics, he describes what all proper theater and good dramatics should have in them. And of course, Pity and Terror are some. Hubris is another. And uh, always end with a wedding. As it turned out, New York was more than willing to embrace Mr. Albee again. Okay, maybe not embrace, since that implies huggability. Writing about Mr. Albee, the most exacting of semanticists, makes you question every word you use. Um, he didn't even mention the bit of dialogue that made me think, no, surely he did not say that. 
a description of a man. Uh, this is what him talking about um, in The Goat. This is Mr. Brantley talking about Mr. Albee's play The Goat. A description of a man dandling an infant on his lap and realizing to his distress that he'd acquired an erection. In 2002, Mr. Albee was evidently still quite capable of making even jaded critics who had done their time with naked fornication of fringe theater squirm. But it's never just the shocking detail that unsettles with Mr. Albee. What's most disturbing always is his insistence that our most primitive instincts keep asserting themselves in even the most civilized settings, like a minotaur at a cocktail party, and usually they wrestle us to the ground. Violence, violence, chants the mousy honey with a cheerleader's delight in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That's when George and Martha and um, the other character's name escapes my mind, of course, at this moment, uh, are fighting on the floor drunk. Nasty eruptions of the impulse to hurt and his frequent uh, conflation with the sex drive were always a part of the mise-en-scene with Mr. Albee. Uh, I met Mr. Albee several times, socially and professionally. I had mispronounced his name. It's Albee, Ben, not Albee. In a way I associate with a long-gone era, there was power in his gaze, though, an assessing twinkle that you suspected might easily be fanned into a flame that could scorch. Once I saw him for an interview the day after I'd attended a new play of his at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. I told Mr. Albee that my 20-something nephew, whom I'd taken to the show, had greatly enjoyed the production. Good, said Mr. Albee. I hope he didn't enjoy it too much. <laughs> Here's a couple quotes. Uh, Most critics can't tell me if anything is good. I find that when my plays are going well, they seem to resemble pieces of music. A playwright or any creative artist is his work. The biography can be distorting, or it's just gravy. The work is the essence of the person. All plays, if they're any good, are constructed as correctives. That's the job of the writer. Holding up a mirror to people. We're not merely decorative, pleasant, and safe. The only thing, two things you can write about are life and death. People don't know anything about themselves. They shouldn't write about themselves. That one I found wildly profound. Almost anyone else would tell you, any writer, anybody who teaches writing, anybody who teaches screenwriting, anyone who's a poet or a playwright or a novelist of any kind would say, write about what you know, starting with yourself. And he's absolutely right, isn't he? Uh, people don't know anything about themselves. They shouldn't write about themselves. People were always asking him, was he writing about himself for people he knew? And he'd say, well, it was, it was like about people he knew. It was a conglomeration of people he knew. I think that was too easy an answer for him. Way too easy an answer. Also, after his partner, longtime partner died, he said, first he felt self-pity and grief, and the grief never goes away. You're always missing them. But he realized he had to get on with it. And in my opinion, he might be the most get-on-with-it uh, artist uh, that America's produced, in, in, uh, certainly in the theater. Um, the beginning of his career was... <clears throat> I, I never understood the word meteoric because meteors fall to the ground, but uh, the, the beginning of his career was explosive. Um, between Zoo Story and Virginia Woolf in three or four years, short years time, and he was young then, he was in his 20s, um, he was famous. And then they made the movie in 66, and he was, what, early 30s, and the movie was famous, and it won a bunch of Oscars, and he was acclaimed and rich, and he had eschewed and denied his parents money. They offered him money, and he couldn't wait to leave them, and he hated them so much that by 18, he took off to New York by himself and decided he'd make his own money. In between that, he had all the plays that were disasters. There was probably a 20-year period where he didn't get produced in New York City. Pardon me. Arthur Miller, when he passed, um, I remember being in Chicago and uh, 
reading the morning papers while I was having breakfast and they dimmed the lights on Broadway and the Chicago papers wrote quite a, a nasty little article, which was quite accurate about how all of Arthur Miller's later plays had been produced on stage in main stage shows in Chicago and none had on Broadway. Arthur Miller hadn't had a play on Broadway in 20 years when he died and Broadway, because it's like Hollywood, went, hey, we produced a bunch of his plays back in the 50s, remember? And so, uh, but Albie came out the other end of that and had Pulitzer Prizes and Tonys and Three Tall Women and the Goat were smashes. He was able to resurrect uh, in the critics' eyes, uh, maybe not so much in the public eyes, his fame and glory and his artistry, his magic, his depth, and his perceptiveness. And that's a trick that's very not... Uh, easily done in writing or in show business. And he was both in writing and in show business. And so it's astounding um, the dedication, the vigor, and the absolute lack of self-pity and the unbelievable uncompromising drive that he put himself through as an artist. And so I urge you, my young artists who are listening to me out there, and especially my middle-aged and older artists, um, get the fuck on with it. I don't think Albie ever spent a day... Uh, he took care of his partner when he was dying of cancer. I don't think he ever spent a day feeling sad for himself or uh, 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 wondering if he should write. Writers write. Um, let's go to this ever so briefly. Um, they had a, a celebration for Joe Paterno last week at, at Penn State during a football game. And Evan Grossman, who writes for the New York Daily News, wrote quite a good column about it. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. Um, but he includes some of the mayhem that's going on right now. And the title of the um, uh, uh, column he wrote was Joe Paterno, Jim Brown, and Josh Brown celebrated as Colin Kaepernick ripped for his peaceful protest. Joe Paterno is honored at Penn State Temple football game. A man accused of an, let's see here, refused to stop a child molester or beat a woman. Fans will look the other way and throw you a party. Refused to stand for the Star Spangled Banner and your jersey gets burned in effigy. That was our sports weekend. A man accused of enabling a child molesting monster for decades and two others accused of hurting women were honored, celebrated, and cheered because of their skill running with a football, kicking a football, or coaching a team of football players. It was a low moment for sports. I think it's so brave of him to write this. The people that read the Daily News don't want to read this. They don't want to read about uh, how their entertainment for the weekend football has been tarnished by uh, women abusers and uh, child molesters. And of course it has. We all know what Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno got up to at Penn State, how it was institutionalized, how it was covered up, how people were basically, uh, one reporter was disappeared off the case. Let me go to the, uh, the salient points and we'll move right along on this. Paterno, who died in 2012, put football before the safety of vulnerable kids for years, according to sworn testimony from victims, one of whom said the coach ignored him in 76 when he complained about being abused by Sandusky. Still, Paterno is revered by many in and outside of State College, where he is a hero, as a hero who's been wrongfully accused, nothing more than a victim himself. He also talks about um, <clears throat> the school and many of the 100,000 fans, with the exception of plenty of Temple fans who turned their backs, stood and cheered an honored man for all the good things he did for that school, may have enabled a decades-long horror show because he was either ignorant, oblivious, or just didn't care about what Sandusky was, doing to, Sandusky was doing to all those boys. Tailgating fans were seen wearing shirts that even said Sandusky's innocent. Paterno's statue collects dust in a storage base somewhere in Pennsylvania. And then um, Jim Brown was honored in Cleveland over the weekend. Now, Jim Brown is a complex individual. He has a history of women abuse. He's also an advocate and uh, a black rights uh, promoter for years and years. And um, one of the great 
greatest football players that ever played in the NFL. I know. This is complicated. Um, I'll read you what he wrote here. Uh, Brown was charged with rape and sexual battery in 85. The charges were later dropped. A year later, he was jailed for abusing his girlfriend, Deborah Clark, despite claiming he hit and kicked her, did not press charges. In 99, Brown's wife, Monique, called 911, threatened to kill her. Also that year, Brown was found guilty of vandalism for destroying his wife's car with a shovel. He served four months of a six-month sentence in 2000. Giants kicker Josh Brown. Now, that's current. Giants kicker Josh, as is Jim Brown. Giants fans stood and cheered for another Brown Sunday when accused wife beater Josh Brown returned to the field after serving a one-game suspension. Brown blew off reporters all week, and he nor the team has spoken much about his own checkered past. The Daily News first reported Brown was accused of abusing his then-wife more than 20 times, according to police reports. Yet there he was Sunday, winning a game for the Giants and sending the MetLife crowd into hysterics when he kicked the ball through the uprights. Sports fans and organizations continue to demonstrate they have a thick skin when it comes to harboring, supporting, and rooting for men accused of doing terrible things. There tends to be little backlash, no serious talk of boycotts. We erect statues for these guys, while over the course of the last month, nonviolent protesters like Colin Kaepernick and those who followed his movement and refused to stand during the national anthem are vilified, insulted, and receive death threats. Over the last month, the hashtag... Boycott NFL has been trending because Americans are outraged over a nonviolent protest. The Philadelphia Eagles are planning to join the movement tonight on Monday Night Football. That was last Monday. James Woods, the actor who was once accused of putting a shotgun in his ex-wife's face, is leading the charge to boycott the NFL over Kepernick's protests. Not over the fact that they enable men to abuse women. Not over the fact that there's been suicides, murders, and every manner of mayhem. Not over the fact that they throw the public a bone and have a fake breast cancer weekend where none of the money goes to charity. I know people who are in sports, who report on sports, who don't want to cover the NFL anymore or have refused to cover it as sports writers. They just don't want to be there around what's going on in the NFL anymore. On the other hand, there's the salient fact that we brought up a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> that the vast majority of players playing in the NFL are black people and the state of play in the country with an avowed racist running for president and the police state being the way it is. Um, you can see what the point of this all is. There's something wrong and warped when hurting women and children is okay, but not standing when a song is played before a game is unforgivable. Think about it, white people, and get your priorities fucking together. W.P. Kinsella is swirling in the heavens. W.P. Kinsella built it, and now he is arriving there in that fictional field of dreams in the sky. He was a Canadian author. He won many awards. Um, the book field, uh, the movie Field of Dreams is based on a book called Shoeless Joe. I would also suggest the Iowa Baseball Confederacy and uh, a short story collection called The Thrill of the Grass. He was a curmudgeonly type who loved the game and a very uh, um, eloquent baseball writer. Uh, all baseball fiction, which is not my favorite. Uh, I don't read a lot of baseball fiction because I don't really care for it. But Kinsella was a marvelous writer. 30 books of fiction, nonfiction and poetry. Uh, his final work, Russian Dolls, will be published next year. In the 93 reviews of Shoeless Joe Jackson Comes to Iowa, uh, let's see here, wide-ranging but full of recurring motifs, he has a fondness for baseball, freckled women, and his own brand of magic realism, which involves a comic sense, sometimes unabashedly sentimental and sometimes edgy. In the book of Shoeless Joe, in the movie, if you've seen it, Kevin Costner picks up James Earl Jones, who's a fictional black 60s activist, and takes him on this baseball journey. In the book, he kidnaps J.D. Salinger at his house, and forces J.D. Salinger to get in the car at gunpoint. After a week of going to baseball games, J.D. Salinger gets into the whole deal and doesn't mind being kidnapped. And fantastically in the book, our hero says to him, what do I call you, J.D.? And J.D. Salinger says, Jerry. And that's what I loved about Kinsella. There's also, fantastically, a short story uh, about... Uh, 
uh, the Cubs, and it's called the final game before. Well, I can't find it now. Uh, before Armageddon. Uh, let's see here. Did I find it? Yeah. Uh, it, the, let's see here. The, uh, the last pennant before Armageddon. It's in the book, The Thrill of the Grass. Um, uh, 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 the manager of the Cubs is managing them. And every night when he falls asleep, it becomes more and more clear to him uh, that he's uh, going to the afterworld and there's a giant book. And I'll just quote it here. I think you should know, this is what God tells the manager who's managing the Cubs to a pennant, that when the Cubs win the next National League championship, it will be the last pennant before Armageddon. And then he's listening to a radio call-in show and an archangel calls and says, it's the end of the world if the Cubs win the pennant. By the way, you guys, the Cubs are winning the pennant. They, they, cinched, they cinched their division a week ago and they're on their way to the pennant. I'm not saying that this is going to happen. I'm just saying, you know, stranger things. Uh, what are the risks of Armageddon to the Cubs? In 2003, this article was written when they had their dreadful year with Bartman and whatnot. They interviewed Kinsella and he said, uh, Kinsella said they asked him if he would rather have the Cubs or the Boston Red Sox win and he said I think they're both better as lovable losers <laughs> in uh, 1990 uh, an adaptation was written of Kinsella's work um, by Paul Burroughs Arnold April and a guy named Mula and performed by the City Lit Theater Company at a theater near Wrigley they expanded wildly on the story and they added Einstein Darwin Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln says in the play well you know I've always been a Northsider that's the Cubs territory. Southside's White Sox. That's Obama's territory. Uh, get it? Lincoln's from Illinois. Uh, Shakespeare and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and the Marx Brothers. And here's the scene between God and the baseball manager from the play. I'm a Cubs fan now. Always have been. Glad to hear it. We're all excited. I wish I could be excited, but there's just one problem. God. What's that? You're about to end the world over a baseball game. What a lousy thing to do. Where's the justice? God. <sighs> you going to take guest out of the game and put in Boyd? W.P. Kinsella is not to be missed. Please go back and read him. Uh, and for my baseball people, you know already how beautiful he is. And if you've ever seen the movie, I remember I was on the road. I hadn't seen Jennifer in a couple of weeks. Uh, we were apart and uh, I'd been out for a couple of weeks at that point. I went to a movie theater in Westminster or Tustin in Orange County. And I got high in the car park. Duh. And then I went in and saw Field of Dreams. And... Uh, it's a movie about boys and it's a movie about people and it's a movie about baseball and dads. And at the end, when uh, he's playing catch with his dad, I burst into tears in the theater. <laughs> Sitting through the whole movie, hating it, by the way, going this fucking piece of shit, sentimentalized, fucking not edgy. And then at the end, I absolutely lost my shit in the movie theater. So it was effective. And, uh, and God bless Kevin Costner for his baseball trilogy of uh, Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, and uh, Love of the Game. Love of the Game is mm, hokum. Bull Durham, genius. And um, uh, Field of Dreams, hokum mixed with genius. This is from Gizmodo. I don't know if you're fans of uh, Adult Swim. As you know, here at Proof Scotch Acres, we're not always uh, animated fans. Um, but someone passed away, and we can't find out why, who gave me more joy than any human alive. A show called Space Ghost Coast to Coast um, ran for years on the Cartoon Network. Basically gave Cartoon Network its start. Basically gave Adult Swim the platform to put on every obscure comic and podcaster and all the brilliant writers they've had over the years and Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Excuse me. Ending up eventually, of course, if you use the family tree to Bob's Burgers and all the oh, you know, wonderful satirical cartoons of today. 
And Space Ghost Coast to Coast took um, Space Ghost, who was a very crappy 60s sci-fi character, and some of his supervillains, and made them uh, have their own talk show on an abandoned planet in a, in a studio, where they uh, got into complete ego fights with each other. And the celebrities were lowered down on a video monitor, and Space Ghost would abuse them. And it was the funniest goddamn cartoon I have ever seen in my life. It has live action figures in it. They would interview them in a studio in Atlanta and completely out of context use their answers. And that's why it's so abusive. Um, I remember, and Zorak, of course, and Moltar are Space Ghosts, a company. It's always about this time. It has a theme by Pavement, and it was one of the hippest, funniest shows. I would come home from gigs because uh, it was on uh, Sunday night. Uh, Jennifer would be asleep. I would be high. I would sit on the couch and I would cry laughing. Uh, Space Ghost Coast to Coast is available for you to view. If you go to the Adult Swim website, all the episodes are up right now. Who are you talking about, Greg? Clay Martin Croker was his name. He went by C. Martin Croker and he was known as Space Ghost belligerent and entirely unwilling co- uh, co-host Zorak and Moltar. He did both their voices. Um, he was 54. Not exactly a household name, and Space Ghost is best known as a cult TV series. A year ago, my friend and journalist critic Sean T. Collins wrote a piece for Grantland titled The Fandom Fame, Space Ghost Coast to Coast, Secretly TV's Most Influential Show. Um, that's the article I was quoting when I talked about Aqua Teen Hunger Force and Bob's Burgers. You can go over and read that at Grantland. It's called The Phantom Fame. Uh, that Space Ghost would be like, he'd come out and go, Greetings, citizens. Tonight on the show, we're going to have human Terry Jones from the Monty Python show. And Zorak would go, I hate that. And then Moltar would go, This show's degrading to women. And the Christmas episode was one of my particular favorites. Space Ghost goes, Let's sing a Christmas carol. And he has, knows none of the words. Dawn, we now are gay apparel. Dawn, we now are gay apparel. Zorak, gotta, gotta, hey, gotta, 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 hey. You'll fucking thank me so hard. You'll really thank me. Open up a beer and watch Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Um, I think that might be enough for this week. I'm going to have to leave off on Oscar Brown's The Snake, which we'll get to. And, of course, Elizabeth Warren's stunning repudiation of um, John Stumpf, the CEO of Wells Fargo. Uh, We'll get to it next time. There's always so much more to talk about. Remember, there's less violence and war in the world than there ever has been. But it seems like there's more. Yeah, that's because it's being covered more, you guys. Lots of bad things happened to lots of people all the time in the old days, but there wasn't a big Twitter feed about it. And speaking of Twitter, get off Twitter for five minutes, turn to someone you love, and hold their head in your hands. Stare directly into their eyes, and then eat a piece of fudge and dance. Uh, We're going to leave you with this. I received this letter uh, from a person named Oscar, and he writes me. And this is what he says. He says, hello, Mr. Proops. This election is of the utmost importance. And like you, I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter. But it turns out Mexico's Frank Sinatra, the greatest exponent of Mexican music, Vicente Vicente Fernandez, is also a Hillary Clinton supporter. The link I pasted is a corrido that he wrote for Hillary Clinton. Vicente Fernandez just endorsed Hillary Clinton, pretty much winning her the Latino vote. You heard it here first. Thank you for your proofcast. Thank you for sharing the news of the passing of Juan Sebastian and Juan Gabriel. This meant a lot to me, and I'm sure to the rest of your Latino listeners with much love, Oscar. Thank you, Oscar. Here, we will leave you, and I wish you much love. And may every page you turn be a satchel page, and may every bell that rings for you be a cool bubble bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they are berry bonds. This is Vicente Fernandez, Corrido for Hillary Clinton. Queridos hermanos, su voz es su voto. Juntos se puede. By the way, you should see his cowboy outfit. It's superb. Yo soy Latino 
orgulloso por eso Y te recuerdo mi hermano Tenemos que ir de la mano Hasta que Hillary Clinton Tenga el triunfo asegurado Somos familia importante Que siempre va para adelante Mi libertad, mis derechos Con gilaricia y respeto Con ella de presidente Siempre tendremos un puente A mi pueblo le dolió que alguien hiciera una ofensa y la estamos contigo con nuestro voto tú cuentas tú vas a ser nuestra voz estando en la presidencia 